Okay, so hello everyone. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is continuing my discussions of David Graeber's book, Debt. And I'm joined today by the first anthropologist in the series. Bill Maurer is an anthropologist, but he's an anthropologist who writes about money and debt, like uh, the book Debt is about, and has also published on the book Debt itself. So he's here to talk through some of the concepts, especially the concept of primordial debt theory, whatever the hell that is, and I'm still a little unclear on what it is, and also the sort of the anthropology of it all. So Bill, thank you so much for joining me. Great. Well, thank you for having me, Graham. I'm excited to talk about this. So I'll start with sort of where I started with my email for you. So I was, you know, I'm working my way through through debt, and part of the reason why I'm doing this project was just to force myself to read debt carefully, you know, I guess maybe I'm allowed to admit this. Maybe I've admitted it already. You know, I've got this podcast based on Graver's work, but I never was able to make it through debt, like, <laughs> like cover to cover, you know, sit down and like read the damn yeah, thing. It should be called like debt, the first 5,000 pages. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's daunting and confusing. And maybe I would say every paragraph is interesting, but when you, when you stack it all up, it's, it's it's kind of too much. So I thought, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And I was figuring it out. And then I got, you know, pretty early in the book, chapter three, to this myth of primordial debt. And I thought, I can't, I can't work out what this is doing here. So I so I Googled and I couldn't find any answers on Google. And when I Googled a little more, I found your article, which described almost this exact phenomenon that you were writing about the book debt and you couldn't quite figure out what to say. And you noticed that this primordial debt theory idea, which is perhaps one of the two, at least ostensibly one of the two pillars of Graver's book, has been almost not discussed. And it just was a clue that there was something going on that needed to be unpacked. So I thought, aha, if I have someone who's going to help me unpack this, this, this should be the guy. Uh, well, Bill Maurer to the rescue. I mean, yes. you know, I think I think that that whole phenomenon of the myth of primordial debt being overlooked has to do with the fact that his um, very clear debunking of the myth of barter as the origin of money, um, you know, really, really kind of hit a nerve. Um, not not so much in anthropology because, like, we know that already, but <laughs> out there in the world, right? Um, and this is, you know. Uh, a time after the financial crisis when people are thinking about money and debt in new ways and um, people are going back to their origin stories and going like, well, you know, if the Federal Reserve could just create tons of money out of nothing to save the economy, then what is money anyway? <laughs> um, and everyone has drilled into them from, you know, probably elementary school on that in the beginning, people bartered with one another. And, you know, if I had fish and you needed fish and you had apples and I needed apples, we would meet together and have direct barter, direct exchange. But the problem is, and this is, again, the, the myth of barter, the problem is it's rare that I'll have what you need and you'll have what I need, right? Um, it might be that you don't need my fish, you need some wood, uh, but there's a guy who has wood, who needs fish, right? So um, what do human beings do, supposedly? We invent money. We invent this sort of neutral medium of exchange um, to facilitate those kinds of transactions in the absence of the double coincidence of wants, right? That very rare situation when you and I will have exactly what each other need. And, and this is you know, a story that's been told in economics textbooks forever. 
Um, and even economists will say this is a just so story, right? This is in effect a model um, for understanding money in a particular way as that neutral medium of exchange. But what Graeber does, and you know what every anthropologist who's written about this since Marcel Moss has done, is to say, you know what, that kind of foundational instance of primitive barter never actually existed. There are, <laughs> it is not an historical record. That's not what you find. Instead, and this is what you know, most wrote all about, instead you find these sort of systems of gift giving, of, of various forms of reciprocity where there's no demand for an immediate return. Um, now, to me, that's Anthro 101. But to the Wall Street Journal, right, that's like mind blowing because <laughs> if, if money doesn't come from barter, then where does it come from, right? Um, <clears throat> and, and maybe there's a clue there for how we can understand what the Fed just did when it, you know, printed tons of money to save the economy, right? So I think, I think that's one reason why it got so popular um, out there, you know, outside of academia, um, in the business press, in the tech sector. I mean, you know, I've written about this. It like became almost a joke um, with me and my colleagues every time um, someone would report that people were giving copies of the book away at a tech conference or at, <laughs> you know, a gathering of like international investment firm representatives. And they were all like gobbling up this book. And it's like, why, why, why this book? Why, why is it um, struck a chord? And the thing is that the other piece um, I think people just kind of read over like, oh, words, 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 ancient history, you know, so-called primitive people, whatever, interesting tidbit, fascinating, you know, bit of the archive, but they don't really quite understand how to put it all together or what it all means. And I think that that's because the, the myth of primitive debt is in some ways a more difficult concept to get your head around if you're just an ordinary person out there in the world. And, and basically, you know, what Graeber says is that, um, you know, the, there is this myth that goes along um, with the myth of barter in the way that we talk about the invention of money, which is that um, money becomes a way for us to repay our debt to that which made us. And um, in what he's really interested in is the way that it becomes the, the means to repay a debt to society, which grew us, which formed us, which shaped us, which gives us all the things we need to live and all the relationships that sustain our existence. Um, but then over his historical timeline, more and more the debt to the state. And this is where, you know, his anarchist project comes in as well, yes. because he really wants us to try to imagine how we can figure relationships and figure something like um, value absent a state. But because we've been snookered into this myth of primitive debt, our imagination just can't get outside of it. Right. And, and, and at one point he sort of says something like, you know, really, we're not even indebted to society as such. Right. We're indebted to like the cosmos. We are, you know, we are stars. We are star stuff. Um, how do you write a check to the universe? Like you can't. Um, and that that's the that that is the fundamental truth here. 
Um, if we can't write a check to the universe to pay off the debt for our existence, well, then maybe we need other ways of imagining our existence and our relationships with one another, right? So he really wants us to get outside of the understanding of ourselves as creatures of society or as subjects of a state. Um, that's hard to do, right? I mean, so many of, so many, when, when you start pulling that thread, right? Who am I absent the state warrant of my identity? It's, I mean, you know, you get, you get super like religious quickly, right? Or, or very, very metaphysical. We all, we all are like, you know, the state enforces power over us and has the, you know, the legitimate means of violence to control us and whatever. And we don't want that. But at the same time, I do want to believe in my own, you know, corporeal being and the property in my person and uh, my identity. Those are all things that are warranted by the state too, right? So how do I even begin to unthink it? And I think it's the, the kind of horror of beginning to unthink it that leads people to just be like, okay, this is some weird thing that I don't understand. Let's just keep flipping the pages, right? Um, so, but, but, that, but that is the, the, the myth of, of primitive debt. So the, the myth of barter um, sustains, you know, the illusions that make the market economy work. The myth of primordial debt sustains the illusions that make the work of the state work and make it so difficult to think outside of its terms. Yeah, that's... That's the conclusion that I came to as well. Once I got stopped in my tracks and couldn't figure it out and, and had found your article. So that's that's excellent. I want to throw a couple of ideas. This let, let me give you the way I worked it out and you can tell me what you think. First mm -hmm. of all, the, the the second thing to add to that, or third thing maybe, is that these things are not competing against one another. This is one of Graeber's big points. So if, so if the left says... And this is the other thing is like one of the reasons why I think the myth of primordial debt didn't get picked up is because it would make a right wing government and a democratic socialist government equally mythical, equally wrong, right. equally you're owing. And that's that's why you mentioned the anarchism. Right. Because yeah, right. Exactly. As much as I'm sure lots of people love Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn and also read David Graeber's debt and liked it when you start talking about jobs guarantees and you know national service and all of this sort of like do it for the country not the fatherland but the community the myth of primordial debt is actually applying either way that you owe everyone right. and then the other thing is you know the king metaphor you know he tells this little story of like oh this is how kings worked you know they wanted gold so that they could pay their soldiers so the soldiers could demand food from the villagers. Mm -hmm. And voila, we have the myth of primordial debt and the myth of barter, right. and they both just exist to make states. They're not opposed to one another. You're, right. Bernie exactly. Sanders and Ronald Reagan would tell you that they're opposed to one another and they disagree. But Graeber in this, I mean, goddamn iconoclastic move says no, like fundamentally the market needs the state, the state needs the market. And the reason why you can't imagine your way out of the state or the reason why you get someone like Ronald Reagan, who is running the most powerful state in existence, trying to you know proclaim his fealty to the market while running a state, is because actually these people who claim to be enemies are in some fundamental way working together. And I gotta Absolutely. assume a lot of the left readers don't wanna don't nope. wanna reckon with that. Nope, nope, nope. I mean, I think a lot of the left readers want their version of you know the socialist state, right? Yes. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And these things, you know, what what he's doing is showing how state and market and the myths that that sustain them are basically two sides of the same coin, you know. Mm -hmm. And this is also in in the anthropology of money. This is something that the anthropologist Keith Hart pointed out um, back in the 80s when he has this essay that's called something like, okay, I don't remember. I don't remember what the front of the title is. Oh, it's it's I got it. It's heads or tails, two sides of the same coin. That's what it's called. Um, and his point is that it's very easy, right? Like the head <laughs> is the mark of the sovereign. The tail is the, the value, the tear, the weight, the accounting, right? The market value of the coin. Right there in that one object, you've got state and market um, bound together as, as one thing. And, and you know, for Graeber, um, this is why, you know, Occupy was so interesting to him because it was this moment of and all of these words should be in scare quotes right this moment of truly voluntary associationist collective you know uh uh, consensus driven political action um that both allowed people in groups to to be effective to do something but also allowed anyone at any time to just leave right the possibility of exit was always there. There was no compulsion to continue to participate, um, and yet people continue to participate, right? And so for him, that's one of those sort of magic moments of, of a kind of you know cooperative communalism or something um, that lets us think outside of the category state and market. And like in his, you know, um, the 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 posthumously published book that he did with Wengru. Um, which is called, I forget what it's called, you will remember, like the, the dawn history of everything. everything, the dawn of everything, the dawn of everything, totally modest title. Um, <laughs> you know, there, they are really captivated by the archaeology, archaeological evidence that shows these sort of periods of groups coming together in what they deduce to be non-hierarchical systems, political systems, um, creating large-scale societies without hierarchy, potentially without a state, um, but then also those things fragmenting and people just like leaving and going off and setting yeah. up their own shop whenever it starts to get too state-like, right? Um, what, what he, what Graeber has always wanted to do, and it's really a very fundamentally kind of, you know, humanist um, perspective, is put that possibility of human freedom out front, right? Foreground that, foreground these moments of true human freedom when people are choosing to be in this collective or not um, as the way that we should think about human existence and the way that we should um, fill in the blank what? Together build structures? Well, no, because that's wrong, because that's going to turn into some <laughs> state type thing. But, but you know, expand the possibility, expand the horizon of what it is to be a person in the world. Um, so, and, and, and we can talk about this more if you'd like, but this is a thing too that like kind of always sort of bugs me um, because Graeber, you know, the, the opposite of oppression to me, the opposite of oppression or control is not freedom because I can't imagine what freedom really is because we do all depend on each other for our survival. Um, there are always going to be inequalities um, among people. Um, I am short. Right, I need someone else to reach the stuff in the top shelf. Um, just right, I'm being a little facetious, but there's always going to be those sorts of, of differences that are going to lead to uh, conditions that are inequitable. Um, 
And so the question to me is not, how do we get to freedom? The question is, how do we better organize existing inequality um, for the flourishing and benefit of everybody, right? It's not like you like abolish inequality. Um, it's like you think about how do we manage it, work with it, make it so that it's not um, limiting um, people's lives and chances and hopes and relations, but, um, but something that, that people can work with and work around. Well, let's, so, and I think this happens in debt and the dawn of everything. And, you know, I am very intrigued by Graver's idea of like, we should be worrying about freedom, not inequality, at least because it's a different way of, of thinking. But this gets us to the, the anthropological nature of it. Debt, in debt, what I don't know what we're supposed to call the people, you know, the people who would have been called primitive savages and are sometimes called living mm -hmm. in traditional societies, which is a, also a stupid name. Right. I don't know. People who are living in non non class, non class societies, maybe. Yeah, yeah. sure. So those when, when 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 those concepts show up in debt, it's mostly societies that currently exist as alternatives although of course these societies are, are dying every day as the industrial world encroaches on them in the dawn of everything it's the past versions of them but i will say the book is filled with examples that at least graver claims of people currently and in the past who are living without these structuring myths and institutions and i am completely unqualified to judge that when he talks about how these, these various communities live and are whether this is a good reading of these communities yeah yeah i mean to me um it's not that great a reading of these communities that okay f f first first of all it's really wanting to shoehorn them all into some kind of you know communalism communism whatever thing um which is denying the way that they may be themselves systems of inequality that are just organized differently, mm -hmm. right? From a class society. So, you know, ones where, um, you know, elders control the decisions of juniors and claim that it's their right to do it because, you know, uh, they have special status from the gods or they have access to special, um, you know, devices or ritual objects that, um, you can only get if you become, you know, an elder man or something like that. Um, so first there's that. Second is they all are variously articulated to um, the dominant modality of, of economic and political life on the planet, right? They, they live in states. They are subject to states. Um, they may, you know, try to escape that or evade that or whatever, and they do. They may remain isolated in periods for you know, prescribed times, um, but they, they're all articulated in one way or another. And, you know, one of the fascinating things in anthropology um, now, but, you know, for decades has been trying to ask the question of, you know, what is the nature of that articulation, right? Are they subsumed by it? Are they, no matter what they do, is anything that they create being sucked into the value machine of capitalism somehow? Um, are they contingently articulated to it? So only sometimes, only some people. Um, what are the kind of degrees of separation? But then also, how do they enlist um, things from the world of states and markets for their own purposes, toward their own ends, uh, right? And so when we look at it, it might look like, you know, oh, oh, there they go. They've been incorporated into the market society, but they're actually using those things to do other kinds of work that satisfy um, their existing system of inequality yeah that's yeah. that's man 
This is this is all really interesting. And I, you know, so one of the things that I've done in this series is kind of inspired by Dawn of Everything is looked for places like I had the Byzantine historian Anthony Caldellas come on and talk about the sort of like Byzantine culture of of protest and unrest mm. and and all sorts of things that they did within Byzantium that was considered good and okay and right that if they happened in the United States in 2023, the National Guard would get called out. And I just delight in finding this anarchy in something like Byzantium. And so I'll talk to Anthony about it for 70 minutes. And then I'm kind of playing a Graeber game. And I know that I'm leaving out the fact that, you know, oppression and inequality were the name of the game in Byzantium, which is not to say that that's different from the United States. It's just, it's delightful to find the ways that societies are different from ours in the ways that they are less oppressive, more free, less unequal. But as near as I can tell, wherever you go looking, you just find different versions. The citizens of Byzantium or the citizens of Athens were much freer than citizens of the United States and much more equal in in some ways and just disastrously less free and, you know, slavery existed and, and all of these things. And I sometimes tell my friends about that and they're like, how can you find anything good in Athens? They had slavery. And it's like, well, it's just kind of both and, and I, I yeah. don't know, but that just yeah. sort of leaves you with a much of a muchness, which isn't maybe very uh, useful as an analytical tool. Right. Right. No. And, 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 and here, here's where, you know, one makes analytical choices, right? So Graeber always made the analytical choice to look for origins, right? Mm. To find out, okay, how did, where did this come from? How did this all begin? That's a choice. It gives you a certain kind of story. It gives you a certain kind of narrative. It leads you to look at some kinds of evidence and not others and so on. You know, others um, would, might say, you know, I'm not, it, what does origins give me? Nothing. And origins is like a really peculiarly Western, you know, Christendom kind of way of thinking yeah. about the world <laughs> anyway. Um, why don't we instead ask about, you know, what are the, what are the things that maintain um, existing relations of inequality, right? It's different from origin. We're not asking where did it start. We're asking how does this keep going, right? Um, changes your perspective, changes what you look at. Um, now that's that's another way of of doing it, right? That that that's sort of what I tend to do. Um, yeah, I think this is another place where. We can get in, in this. He talks a lot about Nietzsche, maybe not in this chapter, but in one of the chapters. And one of the things that I try, have tried to draw out is like, you know, Nietzsche likes to do tell you the story of the origin. And then he likes to say, but this doesn't matter, actually, at all. The, right. the origin story for Nietzsche is actually a, a mistake. He likes to start there. And then say like, oh, well, how did punishment? I mean, this is very important for the book debt. How did punishment come about? Mm -hmm. It came about from the concept of debt. And then Nietzsche says like, but at this point, we're just punishing because we're punishing, and that's what right. we do, and it doesn't matter where it came from yeah, anymore. Right, right. And it seems like Graeber should make that move, but it also seems like he usually d doesn't. No, I've seen bad no. readings of Nietzsche where people think that like you can condemn Christianity because it started with hatred or something like that, and Nietzsche's like, that's not... You know, like right. what's that going to get Christianity us? Will yeah, con <laughs> will condemn itself yeah. for that reason, but that's not why Nietzsche's going to condemn it. And yeah. for the same reason, yeah. we can't condemn we can't condemn debt or the nation state or whatever because it came out of 
Egyptian pharaohs or something like that. We need to condemn it because it's doing bad stuff right now or not condemn it for that. And the pharaohs don't really have much to do with it, I don't think. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, it's, you know, it's a very frustrating thing, right? I mean, the, the, um, the origin quest does motivate the, <clears throat> the encyclopedic nature, right, of Graeber's mm. work. You know, he clearly wanted to do that, right? He clearly wanted to make a general statement um, about all of humanity in spite, of, in spite of because of the incredible diversity of humanity that he demonstrates. But he does it to get to this point about freedom, to get to a vision of a, of a lived everyday anarchism um, that could work in the world somehow, right? Um, that's, 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 that's the prize he's had his eye on the whole time. Um, and and that's, that's what he wants to motivate in people, right? He wants people... He wants you and me to read the stuff and then start acting it, right? Start yeah. living it. Um, and the thing is, like, I get stuck on, okay, how am I going to do that? Do I, like, form a co-op? Like, what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, you're really undermining a lot of my project in this podcast, Bill, because that is the thing. Like, you don't need Graber to tell you how to do it. You know, Kropotkin and Emma Goldman and people like that laid out very clearly what what you should do. The the big value for Graeber in anarchism is to suggest, or I think he would say prove maybe, that people have lived this way, that what Kropotkin describes mm -hmm. as a potential future is also yeah. a very real and ob like objectively true part of the human past. Mm -hmm. And I am happy to believe that. I desire to believe that. Mm -hmm. But when I read that, I do read it thinking, gosh, this sounds nice, not like, well, Graeber has convinced me that 7,000 years ago, Kropotkin's ideals of anarcho-communism were the default <laughs> of human existence. I, yeah. would, I would prefer that world. Yeah, um, right. And Gra but it seems like Graeber's project was to show that that was the case. Yeah. Um, honestly, Kropotkin tried to do that as well, and he also failed. It's just, it's just not mm -hmm. possible, mm -hmm. I think. Right, right. And, and again, because he has the, those, those lenses on he's not going to see the other forms of inequality that were extended mm. in those societies that he's holding up. Right. So if you take the kind of um, societies that anthropologists used to call bands, right. Where you have loose associations of people. Um, and I think, think, you know, some Arctic peoples um, and people come and go uh, They're They're moving around a lot. Um, there's no, there doesn't appear to be, any, there is no class. There doesn't appear to be any differentiation of rank or hierarchy. Um, elders don't really seem to have much power over juniors. Um, women can like run away from their husbands and not suffer consequences or whatever. Um, and yet you still have like, you know, uh, violence and beatings and rape. Um, you still have young, young men who are giving, but basically having continually to bring stuff right to the how to the household of the um the the wife's parents over and over and over and over again um to continuously assert his claim over her right um that's not freedom uh it's a different way of organizing inequality right 
it's not the way that we have. Um, there are certain elements of it that maybe look free to us if we romanticize, um, but it's just another way of being human. Um, and, and, you know, for him, I think that he thinks that it is possible to be human, free and equal with everybody else. And if it sucks for you, you can just get up and go, right? But like most people can't just get up and go. Or if they get up and go, then they're lost or they starve or, you know, can't continue to live. Yeah, I mean, I'm very, I'm very, so this whole project for me started when I just was in a terrible, just a disastrously terrible job and I couldn't. I couldn't leave it, you know, I had kids and a mortgage and I couldn't just leave it. So I'm in, I'm incredibly sympathetic to this, to this idea. I mean, this is, this is why Graeber advocates over and over again against the democratic socialists for a universal basic income, as opposed to a jobs guarantee, because he's trying to imagine a world. And I, I'm also trying to imagine a world. I want to be very clear that I'm completely on board with the, the vision of the world Graeber wants to bring about and i love thinking about versions of it that might have occurred in the past but also i'm very i thought it was vital that i talked to you about the ways that those versions are you know romanticized because i don't want to i i don't want to suggest that everything was a uh anarcho-communist utopia before five thousand years ago but i gotta tell you bill i'm i'm looking for this i'm looking for a place where i can do the kind of work i want to do the intellectual work the mentoring Mm -hmm. work cook care for my children and not be chained to a, you know, bureaucratic mm-hmm. job. And that, yep. that seems to be something worth, worth looking yeah, for. Although yeah. the suggestion that they had it in, in uh, Arctic bands or tribal Madagascar <laughs> is maybe a little more, that's the, that's the tenuous part. Right? right. Right. Well, this, you know, this is where I sort of agree with Graeber that there are examples of what you're looking for all around us. Right. They just don't occupy the dominant amount of time and space. So, mm. you know, he uses the whole, like, you know, communism at the dinner table, pass the salt example. Yes. Um, there, but there's lots and lots and lots of things like that. And, you know, in my work, I am always arguing that the thing we call capitalism uh, isn't just one thing and it isn't even really capitalist, right? I mean, yeah. like, <laughs> the market isn't really free. Marx, Marx promised me, Marx promised me that the ancient forms of accumulation would all fade away once we had, you know, wage labor and profit. And they didn't. We still have rents. We still have taxes. We still have tithes, right? We still have fees. Um, all the stuff that he said would just get washed away by capital, and it didn't. And so much of so much of what we call capitalism is just a grift, right, to kind of redirect resources of taxes, of the state, into my own pocket instead of... Um, being given out for the the common good or something so so you know i'm always interested in those spaces where people are creating other kinds of things in the in-between spaces of quote-unquote capitalism um or when they're noticing okay yeah that capitalism thing and they're all using trust funds and whatever that's not capitalism (laughs) i can do that too i can do that too and set up my own thing set up my own network of property that'll be held in perpetuity by my religious group, for instance, if we um, take, you know, the Parsis. There's a a wonderful new book coming out um, by uh, someone named Vivina Leila that is called, what is it called? Well, I'll tell you later. 
but <laughs> great, great book about the Parsis. Um, so, you know, what are those moments? What are those spaces? And then are there ways that we can expand them, right? Make them take up more time and space um, or, or use them. So I, I've done a lot of work over the past few years with the credit union movement. Um, and when I first got involved, I was like, why are these people calling it a movement? Like, don't they realize that <laughs> they're just they're just a bank? It's a movement. What are they talking about? But like, it's a movement and they really talk about it and think about it that way. And when you dig into, you know, how credit unions operate today and their history as well, it's like totally interesting. Right. Um, they are always incredibly resilient during economic downturns. Why? Because they're not traded on the stock market. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the, the owners are the depositors the end right there's no there's no board you know to answer to there's no shareholders except for the members um, to answer to so um you know what can we do with things like that right you know it's clear that for graber um his own participation in various you know anarchist groups um is what you know is driving the analysis to then find ways of bringing other people toward the kind of realizations that he had in those groups. Um, but that's not the only way to do it, right? I mean, again, there's co-ops, there's, you know, mutual assistance societies, there's all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, if we can kind of get a sense of that landscape, get a sense of all the different flavors um, and all the different organizational forms these things can take. Um, we don't need to go to archaeology. We don't need to go to Madagascar, right? We just have to look around and pay better attention. Um, and I think you see that, right, in a lot of, of activist work right now around things like community land trusts um, or co-housing, you know, very simple kinds of things. Um, so and that, and that interests me, right? And I, I'm, I'm always like, oh, what's that? How does that work, you know? Yeah, that's, I mean, look, that's the, that's the everyday part of it. And when I was speaking to Cory Doctorow, he said that his favorite book by Graeber was The Utopia of Rules. And that's the one where Graeber really talks about how the modern day institutions are working. And I agree. I mean, again, this, this sort of like, you know, communism at the, at the dinner table, that's where, that's where I got, that's where I got started with this entire project. And it is, I guess I just need to briefly say, just so you know, you and I are in complete agreement on capitalism. I mean, I try, I know I'll say like, oh, I hate capitalism or capitalism is destroying everything. So everyone knows what I mean, but it, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm quite convinced. I think it is maybe in the utopia of rules. No, it's bullshit jobs where Graver calls it managerial feudalism. It does seem yeah, that there's lots right. of, it's yeah. all rent seeking and it's all yep. power. And this is where, and I think this was another thing that people found really thrilling about debt because it was very clear. People, you know, complain that Graver is just writing romantic fantasies okay, fair enough. Adam Smith definitely also was writing a, mm -hmm. a, a romantic fantasy. And I tell everyone in the same way, like uh, the Soviet Union, uh, John P. Clark, I think made this joke when he was on my show a couple of months ago, like the Soviet Union isn't communist and uh, the United States is not, the free world isn't free. The communist world isn't communist and mm -hmm. capitalism isn't capitalist. Like that's right, just, right. and pointing that out and pointing out all the ways that we can do everyday anarchism, co-op, socialism, yeah. what, whatever yeah. you want to call it. And he clearly thought, I mean, this is becoming clear to me as we're talking this. This is very helpful. Graeber clearly thought that if you couldn't imagine the dissolution of that really big thing, whatever, whatever we're calling it, because it's kind of capitalism, it made it hard to sustain 
these little everyday practices. It's almost teleological. It's like mm-hmm. he needed to think that, you know, if you've got the one version of anarchism that thinks what we need to do is destroy the state with bombs, which is a really stupid version, obviously, and I am against it. If the everyday anarchism, if the goal of everyday anarchism is ultimately to destroy the state and the current system, and it's not worth doing unless you can imagine that future in which the state has been destroyed, then I would say it's not worth doing. Like the everyday anarchism part needs to be of Mm -hmm. value in and of itself, whether you're going to win or not. And it seems like Graeber was trying to provide an imaginary without this big thing constricting us. And that maybe that wasn't the right way to go. I don't know. I'm, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, you no. made me think a lot. It's a great train of thought. I mean, the thing is, you know, can we even imagine what we will become in that after time? Right. I mean, <laughs> and I don't think I would argue that we cannot. Right. I mean, so we can, it's like that kind of endlessly receding horizon problem. Yeah. So we can, you know, keep trying to get there, even though we don't know where that is. Um, and we certainly don't know what we're going to be translated into on the other side. Um, but in the meantime, you know, it's hokey, but like be the change, right? I mean, it's yeah. very hokey, but that's I mean, it's, it. Look, I don't think it is. I know, I know it's, I know it sounds hokey, but this is, and this is kind of the David Foster Wallace move is sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta live in that cliche. I love Oscar Wilde's formulation, which is the utopia. Exactly. It's like you want to land on utopia and then step off the boat and look and say like, oh, well, let's go. Let's go a little farther. And it's clear that Graeber wanted to locate a utopia in the past that sort of prefigured the utopia of the future. And again, sorry, I'm just dropping references constantly. I'm with Nietzsche on this one. You can't see around that corner. Mm -hmm. You don't know what form the Ubermensch will will take. And when Nietzsche suggests what the Ubermensch is, I don't like it very much. Mm -hmm. But we we've got to keep moving towards something better than this yeah. without the promise of the, f- the final greatness or whatever right. is supposedly right. going or coming around that corner. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of like living in the meantime thing too, right? Yeah. Like, like, well, here we are in the meantime, what are we going to do? Like what, what are the, so, so for instance, if we absorb the lesson from Graeber and everybody else that, you know, um, money is a creature of the state, right? And that money money is ultimately an exercise of state sovereignty. Um, well, could we actually use that, right? So, like the modern yeah. monetary modern monetary people are like, we can use that. Let's just go yeah. for it, right? I mean, <laughs> we can do, you know, yeah, MMT, which is now a thing, right? Which is now a thing that is kind of certainly not accepted, but you know, and is heterodox. But you have members of Congress in the United States who read it and talk about it and think about using it. You have, um, you know, Green New Deal people uh, basically absorbing some of the tenets of modern monetary theory to make their argument and make their case for a, a energy transition. And that's really great, right? I mean, that's not anarchism, um, but it's sort of taking one of those tools and using it in a different way now that we understand, oh, this is a thing that can be used in a different way for a different project than what it's been used for all along. Yeah, so. and I think it is... It has been just so exciting. All the energy around MMT and then this this book. I mean, Graeber Graeber's relationship with MMT. Was, I mean, he said like I believe in MMT sort of as a theory, but he wasn't one of them in that same way. But the energy was. I mean, if there's one place that this was really incredibly valuable is prior to. And I think he writes about this in the introduction to death. But prior to the crisis, heterodoxy 
was not was not allowed you know mm-hmm. i mean right. it, it yeah. was all what you wouldn't get thrown in jail but you would get laughed out of uh the world i talked about this a bit with cory dotro as well like if you questioned greenspan mm-hmm. you were just wrong because look the world is good and it's getting better and the bankers know what they're doing and obviously their theories are right, right. and so there right. was there was space for a new theory yeah in yeah. 2008 2009 it was time yeah. And even even if the new theory was just taking out bits of canes, right, and dusting them off <laughs> um, and then being like, oh, my gosh, this actually works. <laughs> you can pull your way out of a financial tailspin by just printing a ton of money and spending it. <laughs> this, I mean, or, or, and COVID gives you another wonderful example of that. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, again, that that was another big part of my inspiration for this project was suddenly discovering this term essential worker, you know, and mm-hmm. finding out that I wasn't one mm-hmm. of them. I mean, I kind of was because I was teaching on Zoom, but like my <laughs> my body being present at work wasn't necessary. So first of all, I was like, so wait a second. So why did I have to be in there first place? And secondly, it was like, oh, good. So these people who you've dedicated the economy, the, the goal of the economy was to take as much from the people doing the actual work of the world and give them as little as possible. And now all of a sudden it turns out they are essential and the rest of us aren't. And maybe we should, maybe we should do something about that. Perhaps that suggests we could rethink the way the world is. And I found Graber (laughs) as someone who was, who was rethinking the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this has been really fun. We, there's no reason to stop. Great. No, now, I mean, but what do you, I mean, we've, I feel like we've hit what we absolutely had to hit. I think so we, now, I think we hit, we hit, we hit the high points. Um, so there's a book coming out with um, Polity Press that's going to be called As If Already Free, Graver, Ooh. blah, 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 anarchist and <laughs> anthropology, something, something. Um, I wrote the conclusion to it. A number of authors have chapters that each pick up a piece of um, some of these tensions that we've talked about in Graver, the idealism, um, you know, the, the anarchism, the, the tension between the, the activism and the deep, deep, deep commitment to a scholarly canon. I'm like, oh my God, the guy was deeply committed to yeah. those dusty old books in the library, right? And a very specific kind of anthropology that relied on all of those dusty old books and, you know, towering almost entirely male figures in the field not a whiff not a whiff of feminist anthropology or or much you know consciousness of what was going on around race and racial racialization in the anthropological canon um but it deals with those and i think it'll, it'll be an interesting kind of guide for people who were thinking about sort of what's my next step um what's my next step with this graver stuff that has helped my thinking and my action get to a certain point so that's just a shameless plug <laughs> as, it's edited as edited by holly free? as if already free it's edited by holly high and joshua reno i think i think you can like pre-order it now um okay it I'll might put a, i mean I'll maybe it's available it. as a digital thing i don't think it's available yet as a digital okay thing. yeah <laughs> it's anyway. you know it's important that you mention that thing about the sort of like canon that he is committed to um when i had some anarchist archaeologists on the show back when the dawn of everything had just come out they made that exact point um that this was a book well a a few points that are pretty much identical to points you have made about anthropology first of all that the vast majority of what's in the dawn of everything is pretty standard 
archaeological stuff now. It was the packaging right. of it for the mass audience that was unusual. And that also that Graver does a fantastic job of citing towering theories of towering theorists of anarchism and also the sort of yeah. standard towering theorists, your Marxes and your Freuds right. and whatever, but that the actual like people who have been for the last 30, 40, 50 years doing this work in academic publications upon which the dawn of everything draws enormously, they felt like it wasn't really there. And you're telling me that's sort of the same thing in, yeah. in debt I'm hearing. Right. Yeah. 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 And again, it's, it has something to do with his like kind of peculiar relationship to the discipline too. Right. I mean, he always, um, uh, considered himself an outsider, even though he had some pretty great appointments um, in his <laughs> career and, you know, always wanted to do this sort of dissident kind of thing. And yet there he is like, you know, citing all of the people from the University of Chicago that you have to cite if you want to be in that, yeah. you know, special club of special anthropologists. So it's just this, you know, again, interesting, interesting contradictions here. Yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, the more I delve into this, the more it does seem to be just, you know, it's it's a form of writing that is, I mean, in some ways it's essayistic, but in some ways it is irresolvable. It's unreconcilable, which which is part of what makes it so much fun to unpack and, yeah. and talk about. Yeah, um, totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 one of those things where you you even if you don't understand it, and even if you can't keep straight all the peoples and the cultures, you feel smarter afterwards, right? Um, so that's nice. <laughs> yeah. So thinking about your topic of uh, the Wunderkammer, the Cabinet of Curiosities, I was thinking about, um, I don't know if you've ever watched the old like BBC Kenneth Clark documentary where he, he just walks you through mm -hmm. the story of civilization. I mean, I put it on the background. It's on YouTube now while I'm folding clothes. And like Kenneth Clark's <laughs> incredibly conservative theory of civilization is total bullshit but oh my god i've seen montagna's bedroom now which i hadn't before and it's just like you right, know right like just yeah. wash this interesting stuff yeah. over me um yeah. yeah i remembered one other thing that i had popped up in my head which is to say in some sense he's got all this he's got a grand theory that um re resembles uh some some of the towering theorists of the past and I do think, well, and in certain, he's got a work called uh, What's the Point If We Can't Have Fun, where he mm. proposes uh, the play principle, which is like, you know, the, the play drive, which is responsible for all of human culture. And at least in that case, he's very mm -hmm. clear. Yeah, I'm kind of kidding, but it does seem like I'm constantly surrounded by all of these theorists, often very conservative people who say like, oh, well, I found the thing, the hidden hand of the market is the only right. thing that matters and everything can be explained by this or, you know, everything that men do, do is just because of the Y chromosome, like like Dawkins or E.O. Wilson bullshit. Mm -hmm. And like, it, at least it's fun to have somebody doing that shit from the left. Yeah, it's yeah. maybe just as specious, but it, yeah. if we're going to yeah. have specious myths out there, let's have some, <laughs> let's have some left wing species. Let's have myths, a lot please. of them, a profusion of them, a plurality yeah. of them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And let them, let them, I mean, and that is the thing that the dawn of everything did. Absolutely. Compared to someone like Diamond or that guy, Harari, Homo sapiens, sapiens, whatever. Yeah, like, that guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, mm -hmm. it was a book that offered a sweeping view of history that didn't, sort of wasn't just a defense of like the British empire circa 1837, which is what all yeah. of those other books end up doing. And yeah. that's why yeah. 
the World Trade Organization is the best thing humanity has ever created. That's where the rest of those books end up. Yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, good. No, it's, good. it's, it's great good. that he it's, was doing it for a mass a yeah. mass audience. And if you want to poke holes in it and discredit it, one, I'm all for that. I mean, I think we're doing that right now. And two, like, oh my God, have you tried poking holes in guns, germs, and steel? It's much easier. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That thing's not. You know, it does. I do want to come back to one one thing. I don't. This is maybe this is like a bad place to like end, but it, it is. It, this is though why it is interesting, and we should take note that some people who really take up graver are like tech bros and like well, investment bankers right because they want also to not be in the state thing they think right they imagine they imagine the kind of escape they imagine you know colonies on mars or whatever it is that they want right kind of elon musk type stuff um and so, like you know, back when the when debt first came out, like that just kept happening over and over and over. Where either I would be at a thing and this would happen, you know, tech bro talking about debt, or people again would email me or report to me. You know, I just came from this such and such conference, and oh my god, they were all reading Graeber. So just a little cautionary thing that. Yeah, you know, I um, no, I think that's right. So the, you're not going to be surprised to hear that I think about this a, a lot. I mean, I think mm -hmm. I think about this a lot. And what I've sort of settled on is I, you know, I don't like the world we live in very much. I think it's a very unequal and cruel world. And so I'm looking for alternatives and to shake things up. And in this case, it makes sense that if people are looking to looking for alternatives and to shake things up, they're going to look for iconoclastic and fairly extreme mm -hmm. theories. And you're going to get people, I don't want to say like from left and right, it's more simplistic than that, but you're going to want to get people who undermine the existing system, who want to undermine the existing system from all sorts of angles. And if mm -hmm. it's a tool that can undermine the existing system, they're going to grab onto it and mm -hmm. you, Right. not everyone who wants to grab onto that kind of tool wants to undermine the existing system for the same reason right, right. that that i do and that's just a in my more cautious you know obama progressive uh persona that wasn't something i ever had to worry about i knew that mm -hmm. all the crazies were on the outside and they were all right. wrong and now that i'm out <laughs> of the consensus it's a it's a lot trickier, right? Because yeah. I need to make sure that I have the right crazies with me and not the wrong crazies. Because let me tell you, uh, I yeah. don't like the wrong crazies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That is, it is, it's a danger. I mean, I think mm -hmm. I'm walking this road and calling myself an anarchist and constantly having to defend myself. I mean, sort of like against the threat of the idea that I am a violent extremist mm -hmm. and also the idea that, you know, Peter Thiel uh, has right. something, you know, similar or Elon Musk is a great example. I it's it's tricky. And I, I, I do see places where there is overlap. And that's why I have to spend a lot of energy finding other mm -hmm. places where there's not overlap. Yeah. 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 I mean, the thing, too, is like focusing on the anarchist part is going to always lead us to think about the, um, you know, the, the structures and attendants of the state. Mm. Right. But then there's but there's other things too that you know not, not just the market but like all kinds of other things right there are um, infrastructures that are a little different and weird right they might be 
They might be, you know, created by the state but maintained by somebody else. They might be the product of a cooperative, right? We, you know, I love um, always going back into the history of the Visa card, right? A Visa, because yeah. it started <laughs> as a kind of weird co-op. Like D yeah. was like, "We're going to make a non-joint stock corporation," and the heads of the banks he was bringing together to pitch this idea of a bank card were like, "What is that? That's not a thing." He's like, well, okay, let's just make one and we'll just yeah. have it be a thing. And it was, and it, you know, did, did amazing stuff for a very long time in terms of, you know, creating uh, accessible non-cash payment for rich people, right? Basically. Um, <laughs> but it remained in this really ambiguous um, legal status right up until, I, I mean, what, like the late nineties or maybe it was 2000 when it reorganized as a, publicly traded company. But before that, it wasn't. It was this weird thing, you know? Or, you know, again, I'm speaking from some of my own my own research now into like payment infrastructures, but the automated clearinghouse is this thing that facilitates interbank transfers. It lets people do their, you know, direct bill payment and direct mortgage payment and get their paycheck automatically deposited into their account. But what is it? That's a really good question. <laughs> it's a really good question. It's infrastructure that's mandated by the Fed but and operated by you know a couple operators and some banks like you know it, it, there are these other things. My my point is just that there's these other things that aren't clearly state and aren't clearly market and are like all around us. And then we can kind of ask, well, what are those and what can we do with those? Um, how do they make the the ambient you know world that we live in? Um, and how can we bring them to the fore, to the surface, and see what possibilities might lie? within them for other kinds of change. I think this is a this is a great place to end because this is really this is really the everyday part. So if there's a there's an explanatory theory out there about the market or the state or the two of them together that purports to explain everything and also purports to sort of do everything. But all of those things have histories within them that are can contain the seeds of their own destruction. I mean if you look at uh, housing co-ops, you know, there's the housing co-ops have become really in New York emblematic of a sort of upper class structure, but there's working class housing co-ops and credit unions and the library. There's all of these different ways of or organizing the world and man managerial feudalism or whatever. First of all, it wants to eat all of them. And secondly, it wants to claim that they don't actually work or they're inefficient or something like that but so many of them do work so find them study them learn them join them use them that's that's the answer yeah, i think yeah yeah i think that is very well said all right well we can end <laughs> there thank you so much bill thank this was you such Graham. A pleasure. this is great thanks so much